Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with under-the-radar folk musicians. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. And guess what? I am uh, coming to you from my brand new studio in my new apartment in Somerville, Massachusetts. It's pretty exciting. I, like, literally have been spending all morning setting this place up, like, decking it out with some soundproofing and hanging up some pictures and getting the lighting correctly and the heaters on and... My cat can be in the studio now. Um, I don't know if we'll be able to hear her or not, but uh, she is having a good time <laughs> down by the heater. Anyways, today on Basic Folk, we're going to be talking to multi-instrumentalist and singer-songwriter Rachel Sumner of the band Twisted Pine. I'll let you know a little bit about uh, what we get into, but first, let's thank our sponsors for Basic Folk. Okay, Basic Folk is supported by Lindsay Myers from LMNO Management who suggests that, if you like this podcast, you'd also like the band Tina and Her Pony. You can check them out on your preferred streaming platform or follow them at Tina and Her Pony on Facebook and Instagram. Rachel Sumner, it's kind of great that uh, Rachel is on the podcast today. First of all, this is being released on Valentine's Day, so it's perfect timing. She has a new EP out with her fiancé called Sing Me an Old Tune, and you can find that on Ian Fitzgerald and rachelsumner.bandcamp.com. Also, Rachel was the final interview I did at my basement studio in Pittsburgh at my house, which closed yesterday, so somebody else is taking over that house, so that's kind of symbolic. And also, it's the first episode being released while I'm a resident of Massachusetts, and Rachel, also a resident of Massachusetts. And uh, it's it's just, it's kind of, you know, fortuitous that it's all happening this way, and I'm getting very sentimental. But Rachel and I get into quite a bit here on Basic Folk. Uh, we talk about her upbringing in Lancaster, California, which is in Southern California, and and the experience she had discovering the music scene around this club in Los Angeles called Largo, where people like uh, Amy Mann and Sarah Watkins and the Watkins Family Hour and Gillian Welch perform pretty regularly and have this like very thriving scene. And that kind of inspired her to really go for it. And we talk about uh, her interest in classical music. Also, I get a little bit heady here with my questions. I'm going to leave them in just because I think they're interesting things to think about, but I think I like came on like really strong and uh, I sent like Rachel some texts afterwards. I'm like, sorry, I like took over the conversation 
afterwards, but she's like so cool. It was it was fine. Rachel is part of the bluegrass band Twisted Pine. Their latest album is an excellent covers release called Dreams, which we talk about a little bit. Rachel uh, last fall released an EP called Anything Worth Doing, and it's different than uh, a bluegrass album. There's some interesting layers on uh, on the EP that I really like, and it's interesting to think about how she wanted to uh, pursue a career in film composing and had this classical music background as we take a listen to this song, Shake and Shiver, from Rachel Sumner, and then we'll get to our conversation with her on Basic Folk. Wildflowers bloom before you Reaching the fist of winter's rule I know they'll die so do you Cause winter is long and winter's cruel All of this living just lay Rachel Sumner, thank you so much for coming on Basic Folk. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. I thought I'd start the interview um, talking about drive and discipline. Mm. So I read this quote from you that says, Even though I am a trained musician and the many ways I make a living are music-related, my primary disciplines are self-taught. I'm proud of the way I've been able to adapt and expand on my own abilities. So usually I think a lot of the qualities of a person come from their surroundings during formative years, like when you're younger. I'm not sure if you can agree with that or not, but can you talk about where your drive and discipline might have possibly come from? Well, to begin with, I was a really precocious child um, growing up, and uh, I wanted to know everything um, that I, I possibly could and do everything as, as well as I could. And that wasn't anything that, like, my parents pushed me toward. I, I was just, like, naturally curious. And uh, I realized that that was kind of the way out for me. I grew up in kind of a, a not-so-great environment um, with my family. So I, I realized that the, the way out was, you know, through school, through music, and uh, I kept pushing and pushing, and now I'm here. I want to know more about your town, if you're comfortable talking about, is it Lancaster? Yeah, Lancaster, California. California, South, Southern California. Yeah. You know, can you tell me a little bit about your growing up and what that was like, and, you know, were you around a lot of music as a kid? Um, not, there's not a lot of music in the city um, itself, but my mom always had music playing. We would be singing in the car. Like, Everly Brothers was, that was my, one of my first um, oh, cool. musical experiences. My dad would go mountain biking down um, a specific hill, and we'd get to the top. And then he'd go, and she'd quickly put in the, the Everly Brothers tape, and we'd, we'd sing all the way down to the bottom <laughs> um, when we picked him up. And uh, That's a cool story. Yeah. Um, so that that was kind of my introduction to folk. She was playing James Taylor a lot and um, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. But yeah, there, there wasn't much going on in the city. It's a pretty dusty town. Um, it's 
the desert. There are Joshua trees all around. Um, it's technically part of Los Angeles County, uh, but it's about an hour and a half away from the actual city, the proper city of L.A. And I also read that um, your mother and your grandmother were early supporters of you. Is that your, of your music? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. My mom has always been there for me and, and my grandma, too. She They've just really pushed me um, and tried to understand why I wanted to be a musician. And they don't play. Uh, my mom picked up violin, actually, after I had uh, started playing the flute. That's she cool. she wanted to learn, and so she plays an orchestra, and she's really great. She's always uh, progressing. Oh, great. What do your parents do for a living? Um, so my mom works with special ed students, uh, and my dad isn't in the picture anymore. Okay, gotcha. Um, so when did you come to the flute? Was it your first instrument? Yeah, I came to the flute in fourth grade. Uh, they had like an instrument petting zoo. Uh, <laughs> you well, they start you off on flutophone, the the recorder. Oh yeah, um, you put in a third sock. grade. Yeah, yeah, I had a, a purple sock for that. <laughs> and um, so once you you pass the flutophone third grade year, then you get to go to the instrument petting zoo, and you get to choose an instrument. And the two instruments I could make noise out of were the flute and the trumpet. And I came home just saying, "Mom, I want to play the trumpet," and she was like. It's kind of loud. Why not the flute? <laughs> so I ended up playing the flute all throughout high school, and then I, that's what I went to Berkeley for, yeah. actually. Um, so not to, like, jump all over the place here, but I wanted to know what it was like when you discovered the music scene at the Los Angeles Club Largo. Oh, yeah. That was uh, – it was one of those moments where it's just so special you know that nothing is going to be the same anymore. Um, so I, I went and I saw the Watkins Family Hour, which um, was a monthly residency. I, they might still be doing it. Uh, Sean Watkins and Sarah Watkins from Nickel Creek. Mm. Nickel Creek was a big um, influence on me when I was younger. Oh, yeah, Alison Krauss and Nickel Creek were like the two albums that I had. And that was my foray into bluegrass. That was as bluegrass as, as I got at that age. And so uh, once I graduated high school... I figured out how to use the internet and how to search for, you know, what are they doing now? What's Nickel Creek doing now? And so um, I found out that they were playing in Los Angeles, and my mom and I went. And uh, they had Chris Thiele come and sit in and on some stuff, and um, it just blew me away. They had a, Fiona Apple come in, John Bryan, a lot of these mm. heavy hitters, and um, I couldn't speak the entire next day. Oh my, my god! I was just like kind of catatonic, but it, I knew that there was something going on, like wow. something had changed, and I knew that life was never going to be the same for me. Wow! Um, and I mean, it's kind of proved true. Yeah. Yeah. Have you been? I've been to Cafe Largo, which was the smaller place. I had a good friend who would play there a bunch, actually. I think he specifically moved to L.A. so that he could get in mm -hmm. with that scene. Do you know Tom Brousseau? Yeah. yeah so. Oh, man. I loved He was there that <laughs> night, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He actually had a huge influence on me in terms of, like, music. And that's how I know Largo is through Tom. Yeah. And, like, I was so excited to see that you had a connection with it. That's an incredible story because it is a really, I mean, like the Los Angeles music scene, like Gillian Welch and Amy Mann are mm -hmm. like local people, mm -hmm. you know, and they all hang out at this pretty cool space. It's yeah. pretty special. 
Back then, it was a little less known, I think. They, they do more comedy now these days, I think. Yeah, uh, like Paul F. Is Paul F. Paul Tompkins, Tompkins is, is a doing, big yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, and I think Largo is maybe how Amy Mann got so into comedy. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I don't know. She's friends with, like, a lot of comics, I think, because of Largo. Yeah. Let's go back <laughs> to the classical side of things. Yeah. Um, so you spent a year at Pasadena studying flute and then Utah mm -hmm. as a flute player studying classical composition and film scoring. And I don't want to, like, skip over those years. Is there anything extremely important that, you know, informed you as a person or a musician that happened? Yeah, absolutely. When I moved to Utah, that was my first time being away from home. And uh, it was just a very different environment. And I was exposed to a lot of music that I probably wouldn't have been exposed to if I hadn't moved. Well, may maybe it would have come around, but I got really into Of Montreal and um, Sufjan Stevens. And those were like the 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 big ones for me. In um, Utah? In Utah. Not in Los Angeles. No, not in Los <laughs> Angeles. Um, surprisingly. Uh, but I, I don't know. I felt like Utah was kind of a hibernation for me as an artist. I didn't play guitar. I had a guitar and I was trying to, to pick out things, but I couldn't at that time. It felt like um, things were influencing me and, and I feel like that's where everything was, was brewing. And, on the guitar? Uh, or no. no, not so much on the guitar, just like influences, like folk influences, okay. but also I was getting really into Bartok. And like classical. Like composer. classical, yeah. yeah. And he does like extremely atonal um, music, specifically his string quartets were really interesting to me. And mm. so of Montreal and Bartok and Sufjan, like they're more extreme sides to them. Mm -hmm. That's what I was really interested in. Mm -hmm. And um, I definitely think that has informed what I am interested in these days and, yeah. and also what I write, but not, I, I don't think as extreme <laughs> as right. that. Yeah. Right. That's cool though. That mm -hmm. makes sense to me. Um, so you were originally interested in classical composition and film scoring, and you mm -hmm. wanted to work in Hollywood as a film composer? Uh, yeah, I actually wanted to be an orchestrator specifically. So what's the difference between an orchestrator and composer? Composers, they write the melodies. Um, they do mock-ups, as I found out from, you know, I, I was thinking John Williams, he sits there at his piano and he writes all the melodies by hand, right? <laughs> Which, he, I mean, he, he did and he does. Um, and then he gives his his sketches to orchestrators. It's usually just two lines or two, two staffs, um, but all of the ideas are there. Um, and generally, he has an idea of, okay, this section is going to be more woodwind heavy and, and all that. And mm. then the orchestrators, they know the orchestra in and out, and they're able to kind of set that. They're uh, the real heroes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they do all, like, the notation and stuff? They do all the notation. There are copy editors that help with that, too. But but they, they know, like, oh, this, this is in the range of a bassoon, or this is actually, this probably would sound better. So could um, you could you do that? At, I don't know if you could do that today if you're out of practice. But like at one point, could you like be John Williams' orchestrator? Uh, I studied it, um, but <laughs> I don't think I could work for John Williams. I, I would wish not. you would have been like, yeah, I could. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. I mean, I, I can think through the sounds of of the orchestra, and partially the reason why is because I was in orchestra for so long, and I can like you say bassoon, and I can hear. 
that timbre. Um, I just, mm. um, and, and at that time I did memorize like ranges and, and I was really learning about like textures and stuff, but I was kind of disillusioned by the, the film industry. It was really disappointing. You don't say. <laughs> I, yeah. I do not find that hard <laughs> to believe. Well, it was just really surprising, actually. Uh, Berkeley was doing, like, a Berkeley Goes to Hollywood uh, spring break, and I was going out there to visit my family anyway, so mm-hmm. I thought that I would participate. And uh, it was cool. We got to go to Hans Zimmer's sprawling studio, Remote Control, and we uh, met with one of his composers because he's got a bunch of composers that he'll hand work out to or um, direct other movies to that if if he can't do it, you know. Okay. Yeah. Um, outsource? Yeah, outsource. There is, there's the word. Yeah. And uh, I remember, this was in 2012, I remember I went to this one meeting where we sat down um, with a couple composers who had gone to Berkeley, and there was this woman, and I can't remember her name for the life of me, and it, it's been eating at me, at my soul. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> but she... I think she she's the reason why I decided not to be in the film scoring industry because she laid it out pretty plain um, and she explained very specific examples of sexism and it was it was bad what she described and at that point I I thought do I really want to push that hard to try to do what I want? Do I really care about film music that much that I, mm. I, I want to subject myself to what I know will be a really difficult thing? Um, and at that point, I was starting to play guitar and write songs, and I, I thought, no, no, that's, maybe that's not for me. I'm not the one to do that. Wow. Great. Well, let's talk about the guitar. And so you had the guitar for a little while. You, you didn't connect with it. But tell me about like what it was like when you finally did connect with the guitar and how it changed you as a musician. Um, when I was at Berkeley, I was hanging out with a lot of the, the Roots people. Um, and I would go to the, the parties that they would have, which were just like fiddle tune parties. People would, would, be, would bring their instruments, and it was really social and, and wonderful and lovely. Um, and I would try to play flute, <laughs> and it didn't quite work. Um, so I borrowed a guitar from one of my friends, and he taught me the, you know, the three chords that you needed um, <laughs> for specifically, specifically for the tune Rebecca, which is like kind of a squirrely fiddle tune, hmm. um, because he wanted to practice soloing over it, and I wanted to practice <laughs> just like learning how to play rhythm. So it was... It worked uh, out. Yeah, it was perfect. <laughs> and, and from there, I joined the, the Bluegrass Ensemble at Berkeley, and that's where I met um, Molly Tuttle, like she was in the bluegrass ensemble with me, and um, John Mylander, and and we worked up tunes and we started singing, and from that I started writing. After I learned enough chords to, you started writing your own songs. Yeah, had you been uh, writing poetry or anything like that before? You know, I thought I didn't write poetry when I was younger, but I found some old journals. Oh, I bet those are good. Did you bring them so we could <laughs> no. read them? No, they're so embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. No, they're all uh, about dolphins. <laughs> that sounds really good, actually. <laughs> yeah, maybe you can show them to me later. Maybe <laughs> if I'm lucky. Um, I understand you're really connected with bluegrass and the music of Bill Monroe. Mm-hmm. So tell me how you discovered his music and what was it about the sadness and honesty that resonated with you? 
I came to Bill Monroe by way of Hazel and Alice, and I came to them by way of Michael Daves um, and Chris Thiele. That project kind of introduced me. Uh, so Hazel Dickinson and Alice Gerard, is that right? Uh, yeah, Hazel yeah. Dickens. And, yeah. yeah. So um, those, and those are like classic old old time players. Yeah, yeah. Or they, bluegrass they, players. Yeah, they came out of the uh, D.C. Um, area, and they were kind of the the first, um, not the the first females in bluegrass, but they they were really spearheading mm. that movement um, uh, for sure. But uh, when I heard Michael Daves sing, I was floored, and I wanted to know why he sounded like that because I thought it was amazing, and so I traced back. To Bill Monroe, I didn't have to go that far. Mm, yeah, <laughs> um, and then I just started to become obsessed with his older recordings, mm. and there was just something. Well, I didn't have a very happy. I had a happy childhood, but I had some really unfortunate things happen mm. uh, in my family. So that sadness that he was expressing, I really, really was able to latch on to it. And just seeing how he used it as, like, a, a form of catharsis mm. uh, really interested me. Yeah. So when you talk about how you connect to poetry, it sounds like the same connection that you felt the sorrow that Bill Monroe expressed. And maybe it's like, because you said this, sometimes I find a really good poem that feels like a familiar or forgotten thought, something I thought about once but couldn't express myself. So, like... It sounds like that was also Bill Monroe. Maybe not so much the lyrics, but, yeah. but the feeling you yeah. felt yeah. for him. Absolutely. Well, yeah, and also talking about um, your professor, Henry Tate, mm -hmm. who was a curator at uh, Boston's Museum of Fine Arts, the MFA. I loved that story um, about how he would try to like show you the connection between painting and writing music. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what he did for you? Yeah, uh, Henry Tate. I just got chills just thinking <laughs> about him. Um, he was one of the most lovely teachers and influential teachers that I had at Berkeley. And uh, well, for starters, he was the reason why Berkeley students get free admission to the MFA, which is such a treasure because there's there's so much in there, so much just to, to take in and, and think about. And so that alone is, is amazing. But his classes, he, he wouldn't even use a, he would use the projector. He wouldn't use the computer slideshow at all. It was um, slides that he took himself. And he was a Joyce expert. He did his PhD on, like, Finnegan's Wake, actually. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. It, it's pretty wild. But like James Joyce, right? Yeah, James okay. Joyce, yeah. yeah. I was like, are we talking about the way that the wood connects? <laughs> James, James Joyce. Joyce. <laughs> I'm here, right there with you. Um, and he he loved to talk about the, the time in France that Joyce was around and Picasso was around and Stravinsky was around, and he would talk about the soirees that would happen and the, the meetups and cafes and how they all influenced one another. And he would take us to the museum every other week. So, like, our class was in the museum. And these are all, like, songwriters. Yeah, yeah, all musicians. There there are no... I mean, some people do visual art as well, mm -hmm. and but uh, all musicians. Um, and he, he wanted to make it interesting. He wanted to make it relevant because a lot of the time... 
um, it, I mean, it was easy to feel that uh, it wasn't related, like the, the general courses at Berkeley, like they're mm-hmm. not so necessary to us. Um, and he wanted to prove and, and did prove that, um, no, this, this class is very useful to you um, because I'm going to show you how to take in a piece of art and like understand intention and creativity and um and he knew that that would influence our own music did you also use the word when describing like you know intention did he also use the word like the way that a painter like manipulates the viewer yeah yeah absolutely that's so interesting to think about um and he also must have like touched upon because i've thought about this before and had discussions with musicians musicians and songwriters before and people who like listen to music for a living that like you know somebody plays a song in a music meeting at my former radio station and I and you know the song you know I've heard a minute of the song I'm like all right I've heard enough of this song I feel manipulated Mm. like it's too obvious the manipulation is too obvious Mm -hmm. whereas like the Bar Brothers have a song called The Song That I Heard, which is like, or like Yesterday by the by um, Paul McCartney. Mm-hmm. Like, that's another good example of like, Paul McCartney is manipulating us to love the song, and it's so good. Like, mm-hmm. he's so subtle and good at this manipulation, and I believe it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I don't know. If, there's no question there. But like, is that kind of like what what he was getting at? In terms of like, this is how this manipulation... Maybe that's not a great word to use, but like yeah, I this can't is... think of a I can't think of like a more positive yeah. term. But I maybe we could think of one in in just discussing this because yeah, it is it does seem rather negative. Yeah, but I you know you got that I didn't mean it in a negative. No, no, way. not yeah. in a negative way. But I like to like think of like you know you kind of like you're kind of maybe this is too heady. <laughs> no, no, Let's bring it back to earth. Um, I think suggestion is more powerful. Oftentimes. Or like suspension of disbelief. Yeah, yeah, is much better. That's a film term. Yeah, I don't know if you learned that term in your composer classes. I think I did. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I don't know uh, what else we can draw from that conversation about manipulation. I wish we could think of a better word, or convincing. I guess like you have like a thought or a feeling, yeah, and you want to convince somebody of it, but sometimes it works out better than others. Yeah. Okay, so as someone who wanted to like work behind the scenes as a, a film orchestrator, so you took a really dramatic turn into your <laughs> career. You know, like maybe you maybe would have never been on stage. I had, had stage you. fright. Right. Yes. Such so bad stage this is want to want to hear about. It. I want to talk. I want you to talk about that transition from being like a faceless musician to one who's not. Not only are you on stage, but you are <laughs> uh, a leader in one of your bands and a co-leader in another. Like you're one of the primary focuses on stage. Yeah, I'd still wonder that. I still scratch my head over that. <laughs> it hits me every now and then. Um, I was so convinced, you know, my stage fright was so bad that I thought my role, I would be best backstage, and I was totally happy with that. Um, very, very content with that thought. Uh, actually, at Largo, that that kind of uh, helped me break my stage fright bout, uh, because I saw John Bryan uh, do one of his solo shows, and he's just... 
Um, he plays everything. He loops everything. That was my first time seeing anybody loop something live. And he's kind of like an odd, yeah, an odd duck. Yeah, I've never seen anyone perform like him. <laughs> and that was part of the the thing that inspired me. He just like he checked in with the audience at the beginning of the show. Um, said, essentially, hi, everybody, I'm John Bryan, I'm going to play some songs for you. (laughs) And then he didn't check in until the end of the show. He was just in his own bubble. And I thought, oh, that's, that's key, is, you know, owning and inhabiting your own space. Mm. Um, I still think that's true. So once I learned about that, and once I thought more about that concept, I started feeling more comfortable. Mm. And, uh... I, I still don't understand why I did that. Um, I'll probably be wondering years from now. Right, right. Honestly, but well, that yeah, that's great. It sounds like you are really you really like intentionally try to enjoy yourself. Mm-hmm. Which um, when I I don't get nervous anymore on the radio, but I definitely would like try to tell myself enjoy yourself on the radio, and I'm like, no, I <laughs> never could. Yeah. Um, um, you are a live sound engineer at Club Passim. Are you still doing that? Yeah. Great. What has that experience been like for you? Nothing but wonderful. Um, I went in not knowing anything about a mixing board. Um, and Matt Smith and Abby Altman and Dan Bowie, my bandmate who also works there, um, doing the same thing. They all taught me how, how to do it and how to, um, set up for a band and, and mix them and, uh, it was really empowering to demystify that part of um, the live music hmm. aspect because uh, because I never I never understood it felt like there was a wall between me as a performer and the sound engineer because I didn't know what was going on right um, and and that would make me really nervous and I'd feel really self conscious and once I I learned the basics of that and once I started uh, feeling much more comfortable in that way it helped my life as a performer a lot that makes so much sense yeah yeah yeah. so there was that and then Passim Club Passim is just one of the best places on earth as you know Mm, yeah Yeah, I used to do that I used to run sound at Passim oh you did yeah I didn't know yeah I found it to be um a roller coaster of emotions yes um particularly on open mic night yeah, that's where they they start you out. Matt Smith called that sound engineer boot camp. Yeah. 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 I had a great time uh, one time. Like, it's so stressful. And also, like, I used to have, um, like, before smartphones and before flip phones, I had, like, that Nokia brick. And I put it on the soundboard. Mm-hmm. And then somebody, like, called me. And so my ringer was off, but it still made that like metallic like noise uh-huh. over the speakers, and I was like, "Oh no! <gasps> oh gosh!" Oh, but so many, so many horrible memories of just hard times. Like I am not a born <laughs> sound engineer, but I will say the last time I did sound, it was for the mammals. Oh, and Mike Miranda was so kind to me, and I like. They each play, like, 17 different instruments. Yeah. And the show was sold out, and they wanted, like, 20 guest list spots, and I was, like, trying to figure it out. And then, you know, I called Mike over to the soundboard and was, like, having, like, a tiny panic attack. And I was like, can you just help me label these <laughs> these uh, these instruments? And he was so cool. Anyways, a little yeah. tangent. But, yeah, that's cool. 
Um, so your band Twisted Pine formed at a really neat bluegrass community. Um, is this right? The Tuesday night bluegrass jams at the Cantab Lounge in Cambridge. Yeah. Which is, I don't know if it's still like this, but it was like really pretty divey. Yeah. Is it still oh, pretty yeah. divey? Yeah. Very. <laughs> um, so what, what is that world like? And, and what did that connection to your bandmates feel like when you first came together? Well, anything set in a divey bar <laughs> is uh it's it's interesting there's there's always characters that are are attracted to that and um it's so much fun to to constantly play with uh folks like new folks who come into Boston and they want to visit they've heard about the Cantab and they they come to visit so like a tourist attraction kind of sometimes yeah. like a low key tourist attraction oh, yeah. you know <laughs> only only musicians really know about it yeah um and uh it was also like oh who's going to be there this next week you know the the sort of who's who of of boston would would kind of show up and um and it was it was really cool meeting people that way working on songs to be played at the cantab um twisted pine we essentially started with the residency um and the reason why we kept playing together uh, well, one of the reasons was just because we had this residency, and so we worked up new material all the time. Um, Can you just real quick explain if people don't know what a residency is? Yeah, so uh, a residency, our residency, we would play once a month um, on a particular Tuesday. I think it was like the first Tuesday of every month, um, and we'd play at 8.30, the the opening slot, um, and uh, yeah, yeah, so we, we would continue to to work up material, and then from that we would get other gigs. Like folks would be like, "Oh, uh, I've got this this coffee shop that that I have," and and that kind of fueled everything. Um, and then we thought, "Oh, we can we can get more gigs this way, or or get more gigs and and be a band," you know? Yeah. Um, so this is uh, this is interesting. I wonder if you have an opinion about this. Like I was listening to an interview with the band, and one of the guys, I don't know if it was Chris or Dan was talking a little bit about hearing you and Kathleen sing your songs and hearing the different styles between the two of you. And I wonder if you could talk about being able to work so closely with a band and how that might help you get to know yourself as a musician versus like figuring out a loan or, I mean, there must be positives to, to both of those experiences. Yeah. Um, one nice thing about being in a band is that you have four instruments that you know are going to be uh, there well for in my case I have four four instruments um, that I I know will be there I limit myself to that and I think okay well how what what can I hear what can I picture um, and and I work with that so adding limitations is a really good way for me to avoid running in circles with an idea or mm. uh, becoming really you don't frustrated love that, running in circles. Uh. <laughs> If I'm feeling particularly masochistic, <laughs> maybe. But yeah, uh, I, I need that. Yeah. Uh, especially in the beginning of, of writing songs, you know, I, I needed the courage that I would get from them mm -hmm. because this was like the first band I played guitar with. Um, and, and they would teach me new chords. They would teach me new things all the time. And so I felt really comfortable with them. They're my friends. And, uh, and, in the beginning, I was really shy to bring my music 
to anyone, but it, it felt very natural to bring it to my friends, you know, who, who wouldn't judge me for it and who would only build it up and make it better. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder also if, you know, you might think of yourself as, as one type of songwriter, but you bring a song to the band or you do something and then they actually like pointed out like, oh, hey, it's actually, you know, this is, this is what we see as like someone who's like close to you musically, like, does that make sense? Where they like analyze yeah. for me? Yeah. And you get like an outsider's, like a, a close uh, collaborator's outside opinion of who you are as a musician. Huh. Um, I don't think that's actually, that's, maybe it's gone unsaid. Yeah. Um, in the band. Too heady. <laughs> we don't, we don't get that heady in, in that band, but that's like, that's something that Ian Fitzgerald and I would talk about. Definitely. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and it's really helpful to have that outside perspective on, you know, I'm still figuring out who I am and, and what I, what I like to write and what I gravitate toward. And, um, it's really helpful to have somebody who's, uh, it's, it's fresh for, you know, um, and he's, he can see everything all at the same time and, and I'm living it in real time. Mm. So it gets a little, uh, easier to, to forget. And Ian, Ian is your fiance. Would you call him like your closest collaborator? I mean, yeah. Life collaborator. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you are about to release, uh, an EP. Yeah. 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 We just recorded, um, in December. It was just like two days of, of recording where we were just in a room facing each other and we just did whole live takes. Sounds like very romantic and intimate. There were candles. Oh, <laughs> <God>. <laughs> that's cool. And that's going to be out digitally. Yes. Uh, only, only okay, digitally great. for now. So going back to Twisted Pine, I wanted to talk about the um, cover of Dreams by the Cranberries. The, mm. the covers album is really fun. And I think the most striking performance um, is your vocal part on Dreams by the Cranberries. And it seems to be that that song has kind of like kicked off the project. Um, and I again, one of your band members said this, and I can't remember which one it was. Rachel has the kind of voice that's perfect for that high lilting stuff that Dolores did. And I was wondering if you had a prior connection to Dolores O'Riordan, who sadly passed away about a year ago, um, if you had a connection to her before you sang that song or if you feel it now after you've recorded that. Yeah, well, first off, thank you so much. Um, uh... It's crazy. You've got to hear it. Sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I... I I listened to the radio a lot growing up, um, and that was one of my favorite songs on the radio, uh, and uh, and I would always you know sing along with it in the back of the car, probably badly, um, <laughs> but but it it really felt you know I have a lot of very vivid memories of driving down a particular road like in on Soledad Canyon Road in Santa Clarita with my grandmother and. Um, uh, there's there's a lot that's attached for me, um, and actually it wasn't the thing that kicked off the the album. Actually, it was a, a last minute addition to oh. to the album. We recorded the album in December, in late December, uh, and it was originally a six song EP. And um, we were driving to Baltimore, and we found out about Dolores O'Riordan's death, and we were heartbroken. Um, and so we were, decided to listen to some of the cranberries on the, the way to, to play the eight by 10. And we got stuck on 
Dreams. We just, we listened to it about 12 times. Wow. Uh, in the van together. And um, we were like... Was that just like a, a general consensus in the van? Like, again, let's hear it again. Yeah, yeah. Because then we started going, wait, we should... We, we can do this. Because um, in it, I could hear myself singing that part. Kathleen could hear herself singing that part. And we were like, we should just work it up as a tribute. It, was, it wasn't meant to be like a, a thing mm-hmm. that we were going to start doing. And we, we played it that night. And then we played it the next night. And then we played it the next night. And then we started really trying to tweak it and, and keep, but keep it as true to that's the, the original as possible because... We just were so moved by it, and we wanted to capture that. And mm. um, we recorded it, and we added it uh, as a last-minute add-on for, for the album, and it became the title track. So. Nice move. Really good. Thank you. Cool. Um, and also, I want to hear about Ultimate Lady Hang. Oh, yeah. Um, that started out uh, at Campfire, um, Club Passim's Campfire, which uh, I think it was the Memorial Day Yes, it was the Memorial Day campfire, uh, and there was a songwriting round. Um, it consisted of myself, Katie Martucci from The Ladles, Issa Burke from Lula Wiles, Ellie Buckland also from Lula Wiles, and Aurora Birch, who uh, is, her name is Emily Moran. She was my roommate, actually, oh. at the time. And we could have just let it be a normal round where we all sing a song and pass it back and forth, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But we wanted to add, we wanted to challenge ourselves and add another level of um, collaboration. So we started planning, you know, a couple rehearsals very close to the the round. Uh, We didn't have much time for preparation. As one does. Right, yeah. Yeah. But we we all were just like, well, we can play these many instruments, uh, (laughs) all of the instruments. And, you know, I was playing like clarinet and flute and guitar and Issa was like soloing. Issa's crazy. She's so good. She's insane. Yeah. Um, and, and doing all, all the cool stuff. Uh, and I mean, Emily played bass. Um, I played banjo with Katie. I wonder if there were any fiddles on stage. Issa played fiddle. (laughs) <laughs> yes, Issa did play fiddle. Yeah, it, and then the next time we did it, we added Denny Lavinka from the Western Den and um, Holly McGarry from Honeysuckle. And that was so much fun. Uh, Denny is a, a keyboardist, so she, she brought that and a harmonium. Um, wow. Yeah. Like a, um, a fold-up piano that you step on? Yeah, or that you squeeze. Oh, and... like in a yoga class? I don't know. What yeah. yoga class is that? <laughs> I've been at, you haven't been in a yoga class with a harmonium and then they make you sing along? No, I want to go to that class. All right, class. we'll find one okay. and we'll go. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it just became a, a really fun outlet uh, for us, a place where we could try new songs. Mm. Um, we did a benefit for Planned Parenthood um, at one point. where So this is very like a loose kind of very loose yeah yeah we get together sorry i interrupted you no no three like three days before we'll get together and and work out like complex <laughs> harmonies and, and it's part of the mission statement yeah we don't have a lot of time to prepare <laughs> yeah we really like to stress ourselves out <laughs> <laughs> uh that's cool i hope that you do it again i get in, and i get to see it maybe on concert window yeah well we we want to record we want to record and we want to get like we want to do it with Maybe an all-female cast, you know, uh, like female engineer, female mastering engineer. Um, we just want to 
do that at some point. I, I don't know when it will be, but it's cool. definitely something that bubbles up all the oh, time. I love that. Um, okay, so let's talk about this EP a little bit. Um, at one point, I'm interested in this story about how like you were kind of unsure about the direction of the sound and what you wanted it to be like. And then one night you were asked to put together a show at the Lizard Lounge in Cambridge. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if this was like the lady hang where you had three days to prepare or anything. But oh, yeah, like definitely. One every, day. Yeah. <laughs> so like you threw this thing together. Mm -hmm. um, what was going through your mind when you were planning it? And then like everything clicked for you and it made sense what you wanted to do on the EP. Can you explain how it like that whole process felt for you? Yeah, so I met with Daniel Radin from the Novel Ideas and Future Teens. He um, agreed to help co-produce something with me, and we, we started meeting and, and talking about uh, what songs are going to be on the album. And I had um, I had five songs still uh, at that point, um, but four of them were completely different than what ended up on the final product. And... Uh, we only started demoing the first track, Shake and Shiver. Um, we we only started working on that before things kind of petered out. I really loved the direction that that was going in. But then I started to get really um, distracted uh, from that project with other things like touring and, and uh, supporting the Twisted Pine album that had just come out um, or was just going to come out. And um, I... I wasn't really sure what to do with it. Those original, the original selection of songs didn't really speak to me um, as a as a group, you know. Mm -hmm. um, like I loved each one individually, uh, but it, it something just wasn't really making me excited about it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I like you said, I got a a night at the Lizard Lounge and. Nobody was around because it was January second, <laughs> and uh, and who I thought, asked you to put this show together? Billy Beard. Billy Beard. <laughs> yep. Shout out Billy Beard. Well, and it was funny. I had been there both nights before with Twisted Pine. We did New Year's Eve, and uh -huh. then we did New Year's Day, and then I did this crazy solo thing the next day on the second. And I thought uh, it was so fun. It was really fun. Um, and actually, Billy Beard named the band The Hangovers. Uh, <laughs> that, that was all him. <laughs> um, but I asked Denny Lavinka from The Western Den uh, and Ben Burns from Honeysuckle. I asked them to uh, if they would want to do this gig that I was sure nobody was going to be at, um, mm. if they wanted to, to learn some of my songs. Because Denny and I had written together before, and um, we had collaborated with the, the Lady Hang. And uh, we thought it might be fun to kind of reprise that. And I had a set of songs that I felt good about. And I was like, let me just send you what the set list is. And she was like, absolutely, let's do it. And Ben um, was very on board, too. But we only had one day to, to practice. And that was the day before, like, no, not the day before, the day of to practice. Um, so we practiced all day and we worked everything up. And... Um, as it was happening, I was—I just felt like this is this is the vision that I've been looking for, and mm. I feel good about these five songs, and I, I pinpointed them, and the next day I just knew it—it it kind of all came together at once, um, and I'm really glad that I, I didn't rush it, you know, 
um, because I'm really happy with the direction that that it went. Yeah, totally. And that's such a crazy dramatic story. Yeah, I love it. Well, this has been great. Did you is there anything else? I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe too much. <laughs> no, ground. I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Rachel. I really appreciate you coming over and hanging out in my basement. Thank you, Cindy. Thanks for having me. Rachel Sumner, so excited to uh, get to know her more and see her perform live in Boston. She tours around with Twisted Pine, which um, I actually got to see later on that night after I did the interview with Rachel, and they were just fantastic. Lots of great energy, good people. Um, you got to see them, uh, Twisted Pine and everything about that, that band. I'm on board. Thanks a lot for listening to Basic Folk. I'm your host, Cindy Howes, and also be sure to look into Rachel's new EP, Sing Me an Old Tune, released on Valentine's Day 2019 with her fiancé, Ian Fitzgerald. You can check that out at their joint band camp together. I want to thank our sponsors for Basic Folk. All right, Basic Folk receives support from Lindsay Myers at LMNO Management, who encourages listeners to check out the songwriting duo Mick Dean. You can download singles from their forthcoming EP by going to mcdean.co slash basicfolk. And thanks to WIUP in Indiana, Pennsylvania, which airs Basic Folk 2 p.m. Eastern every Saturday You can listen on 90.1 if you're in the Indiana, PA area or at their website, WIUPFM.org. Thanks to my producer, Laura McCarthy, doing a great job on Basic Folk. We are now like remotely working together. And thank you to Alex Stanton of the Pittsburgh band Townspeople for our music on Basic Folk. Thank you, dear listener. And we will talk to you next week. All right. Bye. Bye.